This is an ABC podcast. Good morning. Welcome to AM. I'm Sabra Lane coming to you from Ngunnawal country in Canberra. The ABC has uncovered a deal that's seen hundreds of thousands of dollars moved from the company of Australia's richest woman to the Liberal Party via a third party. The revelation raises questions about how much Australians know about who funds political parties. National Environment reporter Michael Slezak has more. One of Australia's most successful business people, Gina Reinhart, has led her company, mining giant Hancock Prospecting, through busts and booms. Those jittery Labor MPs in marginal seats. Since 1988, Hancock Prospecting has declared about $200,000 in donations to the major political parties. For the last financial year, Hancock declared $24,500 in donations to the South Australian Liberal Party. But the ABC can reveal $150,000 was transferred from Hancock to a Liberal Party forum, the Australian Business Network, via a third party. The Liberal Party's official declaration to the Australian Electoral Commission showed the money came from a small enterprise called the Sydney Mining Club. Here's how it happened. Hancock's chief financial officer made a deal to sponsor the Sydney Mining Club in an email which read, Thank you for speaking with me today about the proposed sponsorship of the Sydney Mining Club by Hancock Prospecting. You can email the invoice in electronic PDF format to me. The club did invoice Hancock. And emails between the club's employees reveal the plan from there. Do you want me to transfer the money to the higher interest account? Not to be moved at this stage, as $150,000 will be going straight out to the Liberal Party. That employee spoke to the ABC anonymously, recreated here by an actor. The money was coming from Hancock, and it was to be passed on directly to the Liberal Party. Hancock Prospecting did not respond to questions regarding its intention for the payment, while Sydney Mining Club chairman Julian Melnick said the money came from across the club's sponsors. I have an understanding that the money came from Hancock Prospecting. That's not correct. Hancock is not a sponsor of the Sydney Mining Club. But the next day, Mr Melnick told sponsors at a Sydney Mining Club event their money wasn't used for membership with the Liberal Party's Australian Business Network. Here's barrister and anti-corruption expert Geoffrey Watson. The transparency of donors is fundamental. If the current federal funding laws don't cover this, then they must be amended. Following questions from the ABC, Hancock said it had become aware of a deficiency in disclosure, which it had now rectified months after the legal deadline. Hancock didn't specify what the declaration now included, but the Electoral Commission confirmed the update would soon be published. Independent MP Andrew Wilkie has proposed new legislation to tighten the rules governing political donations. There are all sorts of workarounds being used by political donors and political parties and candidates. I mean, this, this just makes the case very, very clearly that there is a need for deep reform. Independent MP Andrew Wilkie ending that report by Michael Slezak and Loretta Florence. Australian search and rescue teams are leaving Sydney this morning to help rescue efforts in Turkey following a devastating earthquake that's killed more than 20,000 people across Turkey and Syria. Many survivors have no shelter, water, fuel or electricity and the World Health Organisation fears this situation could kill even more people than the quakes. The ABC's Sean Rubinstein Dunlop has spent the day in one of the worst hit Turkish cities, Eskandaran, near the Syrian border. In the port city of Iskandarun, you smell them before you see them. Body after body pulled from the rubble and delivered every few minutes to the front doors of the hospital. Oh, the 
cries of grief follow them. This woman screams, my brother is gone, as their sister perches by the hospital and sobs. We couldn't save my brother, she tells me. Five floors collapsed on him. The rescue team came, but they didn't try to get him out because they couldn't hear a voice. This Mediterranean port city at the foot of snowy mountains is usually picturesque, but the port has been on fire for days and the scale of destruction is staggering. Buildings everywhere toppled. There's boiling anger in this city at the Turkish government. Survivors say they were left to dig for loved ones on their own because search teams arrived two days late. Local surveying engineer Erdi Iksizolu found his father dead. He says his country was unprepared despite a tragic history of earthquakes. Everywhere is such a disaster. I don't know, there is no words to describe the feelings of, of everyone here. This is mostly happening from the non-qualification of the buildings. For example, this building is standing still and this one is collapsed. The population of this city was more than 180,000. Now almost everyone is homeless. We find families living in tents and on the streets. Across southern Turkey and northern Syria, there are so many without shelter, electricity or running water that the World Health Organization now fears a secondary disaster that could kill even more people than the quakes. In the meantime, hope is fading that survivors will be found and with too few rescuers, the chances of survival come down to luck. This good Samaritan, Sinom Chente, brought 10 excavators from the nearby city of Adana and has found a man alive under the rubble. Wherever we see the most gaps in the rubble, I try to go in from there, he tells me. When we first came here, the police came with dogs and told us there was no one alive under the rubble. But people there and relatives told us there might be someone alive there. We stopped to listen and heard a noise, and that's how we found him. The man is Suleiman Samar, a retired prison guard who's still alive in his collapsed apartment after more than 90 hours. We can hear him banging against the rubble and saying, get me out. His nephew Emre watches on. When the people uh, talk to him, say, I'm good, I'm good, I'm stay there, I'm good. Maybe psychologically he's trying to keep up the moral. This painstaking mission goes into the night as a crowd of onlookers gather. Rescuers drill a hole through a wall to reach his head, fearing any mistake could make it collapse. Finally, he's carried out alive, giving this city something to celebrate amid so much unfathomable tragedy. This is Sean Rubenstein Dunlop reporting in Iskandarun for AM. In the United States, the Biden administration says the balloon shot down earlier this week was capable of detecting and collecting intelligence signals as part of a huge military-linked aerial surveillance program that targeted more than 40 countries. It's released pictures from American U-2 spy planes to illustrate its claims. Meanwhile, Democrats and Republicans have voted to condemn China for the balloon. Here's North America correspondent Carrington Clark. A rare moment of unity in Washington, D.C. On this vote, the yeas are 419, the nays are zero. Two the U.S. House of Representatives unanimously voting to condemn China for what it calls the brazen violation of United States sovereignty for the large balloon that flew over the continental United States last week. 
The balloon, which China still claims was a meteorological device, has become a visceral symbol for the tension between the world's two most powerful countries, and it consumed almost all the business of Congress today. But there's also anger directed at the administration over how the flight was handled. Alaskan Republican Senator Lisa Mikowski says the balloon should have been taken down earlier. The fact of the matter is Alaska is the first line of defense for America, right? If you're going to have Russia coming at you, if you're going to have China coming at you, we know exactly how they come. They come up and they go over Alaska. But Lieutenant General Douglas Sims says at that stage, the military assessed the risk as not being great enough to warrant action. Following the radar acquisition of the balloon as it approached Alaska, and given the determination the balloon was not a threat to U.S. citizens or aviation traffic, and the lack of, abil of its ability to conduct significant intelligence collection at that time, the NORAD NORTHCOM commander assessed and reported he would continue to observe and report the balloon's movements. The U.S. has declassified some information collected by its U-2 spy planes. It revealed the balloon had multiple antennas, which included an array likely capable of collecting and geolocating communications. In a separate committee hearing, Deputy Secretary of State Wendy Sherman highlighted the flight of the Chinese balloon as further evidence of the strategic threat the People's Republic of China poses to America. We made clear to PRC officials that the presence of this surveillance balloon was unacceptable, and along the way we learned a thing or two which you'll hear in the classified briefing about the PRC's use of the balloon. This irresponsible act put on full display what we've long recognised, that the PRC has become more repressive at home and more aggressive abroad. The Republicans were already planning on using their new power as the majority party of the House to pursue multiple avenues of investigation into China, promising a forensic look at the origin of COVID and the part China is playing in the fentanyl crisis. But the flight of the now-destroyed balloon means China is finding few defenders in the corridors of US power. This is Carrington Clark in Washington reporting for AM. Nations Treasurers are meeting today and one of the main topics for discussion is how the states and territories will craft specific plans to boost housing supply from July next year, including speeding up approvals and rezoning. Regional Australian towns are pulling out all stops to ease the housing squeeze, offering cheap land, rate relief and even some are embracing high-rise apartment blocks. They're contending with poor planning, an influx of tree changes during the pandemic and now a shortage of builders and spiralling costs. Here's National Regional Affairs reporter Jane Norman. At 9.301. In Toowoomba, the ninth straight interest rate hike doesn't appear to have dampened interest. Sold $930,000. Under the hammer and above the reserve, according to real estate agent Hannah Johnson. Well, there's not enough stock. We're still getting so much migration. Um, I think, you know, it would be fair to say that 50% of buyers looking through are not from Toowoomba. Across regional Australia, the property market is softening, but demand remains strong. In northwest Queensland, housing's in such short supply that the Flinders Shire is auctioning off 48 blocks of council-owned land. The mayor is Jane McNamara. We have over 100 people registered so far 
offer for the auction. So feeling very confident at the moment. Can you remember the last time housing was in such short supply around the Flinders Shire area? Uh, yes, back in the 1960s and 70s when we had a lot of sharing teams. Quilpy Shire in outback Queensland tried a similar tactic in 2021, selling more than 10 cheap council-owned blocks. But Mayor Stuart McKenzie says not a single house has been built yet because the landowners can't get a loan. That's a real issue for, for a lot of regional Australia, so getting finance for building out there is really difficult. What is the solution to this? I think it is potentially a time for the banks to reassess how they um, lend money to home builders. The Quilpy Shire tried to step in and build a block of townhouses, but that project hit a snag when the builder sent them the quote. So instead of, say, a house that should cost 400000 to build, they're tendering at eight or 900 because there's just so much demand on builders. It's just crazy. It's a similar story on the west coast of Tasmania where mining is booming once again. But instead of cheap land, local Mayor Shane Pitt says the council's offering a three-year freeze on rates to anyone who builds a new home. There is a big demand for it at the moment and it is uh, holding back development in on the West Coast. According to Kim Horton from the Regional Australia Institute, it's a mess. He says the solution lies in planning for long-term population growth and points to Dubbo in New South Wales, where the council's approved 14-storey apartment blocks. Well, I'm quite excited about this. We know from the research that we've done that the market is there and it's really uh, good to see that, that the council and the, and the development community is also seeing that opportunity and getting on board with it. Regional Australia Institute's Kim Horton ending that report by Jane Norman. Nearly a month since record-breaking floods in Western Australia's far north, there's relief with road access partly restored to communities of the central Kimberley. In December and January, record floods surged through Fitzroy Crossing and surrounding communities, destroying dozens of homes and two sections of the Great Northern Highway. A new temporary track has just reconnected the western side of the region. Now reporter Erin Park was among the first to drive along it. It's an unusual scene. On a remote stretch of highway, dozens of cars and trucks banked up, waiting patiently to hit the road. There's a lot of yellow shirts standing around and a red light, So, but otherwise it just looks like it's ready to go. Yeah, pretty, pretty excited. Can't wait to see some family and relatives. Been cut off for a few weeks here. Five weeks since floodwaters washed away kilometres of the Great Northern Highway, the towns of Broome, Derby and Fitzroy Crossing have been reconnected by road. For Broome resident Crescenda, it means she'll be able to see her grandmother for the first time since last year. I've been wanting to go and see my grandmother for like ages, but the road's been closed and just really annoying. Her aunt, Leah Umbergai, is excited to be heading back home. Her home in Derby wasn't touched by floods, but she and the family got stuck in Broome while returning from Christmas holidays. We had nowhere else to stay. Lucky a friend just found me. And she goes, mate, just come and stay with me. It's a breakthrough for communities still reeling from the record-breaking floods that wiped out dozens of houses in the Fitzroy Valley and has left 140 people homeless. They're still staying hundreds of kilometres away in motel rooms, while the Department of Communities tries to work out how to accommodate them during the lengthy rebuild. Because we don't know anybody in Broome, it gets really hard and difficult, you know, you get frustrated. I broke down a bit because I, was, I wanted to get home. For now, there's excitement amongst the convoy of drivers. While it's good news for reuniting families, the biggest challenge remains the collapsed Fitzroy Crossing Bridge, about 200 kilometres east. 
it connects the only sealed road across the region, the Great Northern Highway. So as the bridge sank into the surging floodwaters, it split the Kimberley region in two. That's blocking the supply chain for the cattle industry, preventing families from attending weddings and funerals and will cost tens of millions of dollars to rebuild. The man overseeing the rebuild is Main Road's regional director, Jerry Zutaliv. He says a temporary barge system will be up and running this month to ferry cars and people back and forth across the river. But the bridge rebuild is expected to take around 18 months. We're putting in uh, ramps and access tracks to get down to the river on both sides so that we can actually launch boats and, uh, and have well, start up a, uh, a barge or punt service, should I say, to ferry people and light vehicles across in the short term. Um, but it's all highly dependent on river flows and the depth of water that we've got available and uh, how quickly that water goes up and down. And we're not sure exactly what, what, what that's going to look like at the moment until the river stabilises. Main Roads Regional Director Jerry Zutaleff, Erin Park reporting there. Now still in the west, the small town of Exmouth is preparing for 25,000 stargazers to swamp it in April. They're hoping to witness a rare total solar eclipse. The town's permanent population is usually about 3,000. Tom Robinson's been finding out how the local residents are preparing for the influx of tourists. Exmouth on Western Australia's northwest Cape is famous for its crystal clear water, long beaches and abundant ocean wildlife. But attention is now turning to how the small community can support tens of thousands of eclipse chasers. 48-year resident Robert Todd says the huge crowds will pose a unique challenge. We've never seen the amount of people that are coming this time. They're not sure whether the town can handle it. On the 20th of April, Exmouth will be one of the only accessible places on Earth where people can see a total solar eclipse and up to eight times the town's population is expected to make the journey to witness the rare phenomenon. In recent years, Exmouth has blossomed into a major tourism hub thanks to the natural wonders of the World Heritage-listed Ningaloo Coast. While large crowds are common, Mr Todd says the short and sharp influx of eclipse chases has residents worried about waste, water usage and accommodation. They're a little bit frightened about it. Exmouth Shire President Darlene Austin understands the nerves some people are feeling. There's always going to be, you know, people that will not enjoy the amount of people around. However, she says years of planning alongside the state government has left the town in a good position. Think of this as going to be something that, you know, will be part of Exmouth's history. Preparations include a temporary 6 million litre water tank, an overflow campground for up to 6,000 people and upgrades to telecommunication infrastructure. Miss Alston hopes this will be enough to meet the extra demand on the town's services. We've been busy preparing and making sure that we can cater for everyone as best we can. Part of the challenge in preparing for the eclipse is the fact that the exact number of visitors can't be confirmed in advance. The current estimate is 25,000 people, but guesses vary. You just really go with the flow. I feel excited, nervous, but mostly excited. That's Anne Rossler. 
She owns two major hospitality venues in town. She's planning as best she can, but doesn't know exactly how much extra staff, equipment and food is needed. A lot of brainstorming, more fridge space, more, you know, more plates, more cutlery, more glasses. Miss Rossler first visited Exmouth as a backpacker and stayed due to the untouched environment. Super important that we do the right steps to actually keep it as pristine as it is. Exmouth businesswoman Anne Rossler, ending that report by Tom Robinson. And that's AM for today. Thanks for your company. I'm Sabra Lane. Hi, I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily podcast. This week, the Indigenous Senator Lydia Thorpe quit the Greens. She's now declared herself a leader of the Black Sovereign Movement. Today, we unpack what Black Sovereignty is and its connection to the voice referendum later this year. Look for the ABC News Daily podcast on the ABC Listen app. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.